0: This is the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Welcome to the second part of my interview with Steve Hodel, former LAPD detective and author of Black Dahlia Avenger, Most Evil, and other true crime books. His personal investigation into his father, George Hodel, has led Steve to evidence pointing to his father as not only the murderer of the Black Dahlia, but a slew of other murderers across the country and even the world. We'll talk in this episode about some of the recent evidence Steve has uncovered that solidifies the case against his father as a serial killer. If you haven't done so already, go back and download the first half of the interview from a week earlier. Things will be far clearer if you listen to that episode first. And now back with Steve Hodell. I'd like to ask you about some of the other peripheral participants in this. People that either you or others have accused of having... Something to do with the Black Dahlia murderers. One person that I've heard others mention is Orson Welles. Is there any evidence that points to Orson Welles having taken part in this?
2: Absolutely not. That's just, I mean, it's, it, it's really wacko, you know, wacko land to come up with that. Orson Welles, uh, uh, you know, there's there's nothing to, uh, there was this woman, she claimed to be a, a friend uh, of Elizabeth Shorts from Medford, Mass., she said that Elizabeth babysat her as a as a child uh, and she became infatuated isn't quite the right word, but obsessed I guess with the with the investigation and uh, she uh, wrote this book, you know laying out a lot of the, the facts and then she claimed that Orson Wells could well be a sister. But there's absolutely no evidence to point to Orson Wells at all. He was a magician and and, and uh, you know her theory is that well, he cut women in half maybe he cut her in half and and uh, uh but it's just you know it's not even worth wasting time on there's there's absolutely no no truth to there's that's zero evidence that uh, would link him in any way to the crime
0: one of the people that you talk about extensively in your book was your father's friend artist man ray he was definitely an influence on your father could you explain what you think the, the connections are between Man Ray and the Black Dahlia murder?
2: Yeah, the, and this is a huge part of not only uh, the L.A. Lone Woman murder, uh, the, the Black Dahlia murder, but, but some of the later murders, too. The crime signature of my father was this murder as a fine art. And and this, this was what his personal madness was. It had to do with surrealism and... Um, and the surrealist movement uh, was huge movement in the 40s, oh, earlier than that, from the 20s to the say the end of the, the 40s. And Man Ray was a surrealist, and he was uh, he was living in Paris. He was born in, in the U.S., but he went to Paris as a young man, and then he came at the beginning of the w- war. He came back to and relocated to Hollywood for for a decade, from 1940 to 1950. And he was a surrealist painter. He was a surrealist photographer, mainly known for his his photography. And um, the surrealists were were nihilists. They were uh, antisocial, to say the least. For the most part, were misogynists. Many of their artworks treat the the female body as, as, as an object. Man Ray, in many of his artworks, Bisected the body of, of women and, and showed them. In one of his first artworks uh, that he did when he came to Hollywood, he has this rope around a woman's, tied around a woman's neck, and uh, a suspect is dragging her down the street. Uh, just, just, uh, just totally misogynistic uh, attitude towards, towards women in general. And, and Dad became very close friends with Man Ray during his Hollywood years. They lived only a, a mile and a half apart. Man Ray would come on a regular basis to, to the house and, and parties. Uh, he and his friends, uh, had, Man Ray took many family, he was our family photographer. He took uh, uh, lots of photographs of, of me and my brothers and my mother and dad. And um, they became very close. And, and dad was in awe of Man Ray and his ideas. Uh, the difference is that Man Ray displayed his displayed in his art, but but Dad went, took it a step further. Dad really and basically surrealists believed that there was no difference between the the dream state and the waking state. And um, do what you will. You can murder. You can fly. You can do anything you want. You're unrestricted in the dream state, and that's the way it should be in life. Well, Dad took it a step further, and he actually. You know, he didn't just talk the talk like Man Ray. He walked the walk. And um, ultimately, uh, he was so uh, enamored, and uh, Man Ray was kind of like his guru, I guess you could say. And the Black Dahlia crime, especially, was uh, in homage an homage to Man Ray. And uh, the body is posed with the arms above the head in a specific fashion, which co- mimics exactly mimics a, a photograph. Manray uh, did in the 30s, which is called the Minotaur, and the Minotaur, as many of your listeners probably know, was the beast in Crete in the in the labyrinth who devoured young maidens, was fed young maidens to keep him alive, and was this monster half man half beast. And the Minotaur was kind of the um, adopted pet, I guess you could say, of the surrealists in, in a lot of their works and stuff. So. Dead, imposing the arms above that, and that was a specific symbol, and it was readily identifiable in all surrealists. They recognized this as representing the Minotaur. So he did that, but he also bisected the body. And in 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 the Minotaur photograph that Man Ray created, he has the woman's body bisected at the waist. So there's that. Then also on the body, the 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 body, the lips are cut ear to ear. They're actually surgically cut. And it's like a large pair of lips. He extended the, the mouth. And another one of uh, Man Ray's famous, most famous paintings is called The Lovers. And it's a pair of lips floating on the horizon from side to side. So I present the, uh, my belief that he extended, um, uh, this to include the lovers, Man Ray's lovers. So you've got both paintings. And as I write in my book, I, you know, I, I, I indicate that Dad used his paintbrush. Dad's paintbrush was a scalpel, and her body was his canvas. So he was actually, these are taunts, and this, you know, uh, only to be read by the initiated surrealists uh, who who left a lot of clues in their paintings in different ways, word games and stuff. So there, there are those two. And then it wouldn't be until my second book that I discovered a, a, a major new discovery, which is actually a third link to uh, Man Ray, which is a, a painting called Le uh which Man Ray did in 1943. And amazingly, it looks like the, the evidence is fairly compelling that the model for this was actually Elizabeth Short. I know that's hard to believe, but we know she was out here during that time. And we have documentation that she was posing for paintings from different artists in 1944 in Hollywood. We actually have the name of the artist, and and uh, uh, he painted two different oil paintings of her. It. Well, it's my belief that uh, in 1943, either George, my father, introduced Elizabeth to Man Ray, or Man Ray introduced Elizabeth to George. Either way, it looks like she posed for this painting that Man Ray did, called Le Equivoque. And the painting has a a very strange geometrical figure on the face. The hair is exactly in the style of Elizabeth Short, which is quite unique. You have to see the actual painting, which is in my second book, to to see the similarity. But it's identical to how Elizabeth Short was wearing her hair. But instead of a regular face, he has this strange geometrical crisscross pattern, very distinctive. Well, George O'Dell, on the right hip of Elizabeth Short's body, Mimics and, and, copies this, this same pattern, geometrical pattern, carves it into her right hip. Again, another taunt and, uh, you know, catch me if you can, if you can figure this out. But clearly, I mean, it was, a, that was a huge link because it's such a unique geometrical shape that it's not like it's just, you know, it's not, I mean, it's exact in its, in its uh, duplication. And there are a bunch of others we probably don't have time to go into, but there's a bunch of other linkage in some of the mailings, uh, he, he makes reference. He sends in a picture, a photograph with a stocking mask over this man's face and says, this is the killer. I saw him kill her. Well, Man Ray in 45 did a, put a stocking mask over Juliet, his, his wife's face as one of his paintings. So again, it's another copy and another reference to Man Ray. And, and just on and on, there's, uh, In my second book, I I go into what I call the Man Ray uh, Nexus, which has about nine different links. And all of this comes back to this theme of murder as a fine art, uh, which was uh, dad's crime signature theme uh, for for this and for many of his other crimes, too. And it was part of his, his personal madness, and it relates to surrealism.
0: So let's go through some of the evidence you found linking your dad to the murder. I have to ask about the cement bags.
2: Yes, so I, I completed my I completed my first book and it came out in o three. And then I had to update it with a new chapter with new evidence in o four. and then again, new evidence came out in o six. And then um, I just kept on going. So basically the fir- first book covers from uh, basically o three to o six. And then in my second book, I pick up, and it covers from 06 to uh, 2014 with lots of new evidence and, and uh, connections. Basically, uh, I learned that there's a file at UCLA Archives, Special Collections, on Lloyd Wright. Now, the house that Dad bought was built by Frank Lloyd Wright, Jr., son of Frank, the famous architect. And, and Lloyd Wright was a, became a... a uh, a major architect in his own right. And he was the son of Frank Lloyd Wright. And he built the this Mayan temple in 1926. He designed and, and built our uh, what I call in my book the Franklin House. It's actually known as the Soden House, built originally for John Soden by Lloyd Wright in 26. So Dad buys the house in 45, and we move in and live there from 45 to 1950 when Dad flees the country. Anyway, I discover that uh, Lloyd Wright uh, had a special has a had a file at UCLA. I went and I went through it, and, and much to my amazement, I discover there's a a George Hodel file within the uh, Lloyd Wright file. And I'm going through it, and there here are original. I, I discover that my father communicated had letters in there with Lloyd Wright, and basically Lloyd Wright took over the um, some of the renovation of the house it was become it was going into some disrepair and dad wanted work repaired and dad at that point left in 46 he went to China for just under a year and during that period he hired Lloyd Wright to do the repairs and stuff and uh, he came back in September October of 46 and um, Elizabeth of course was killed just a few months later but uh, getting back to the, the bags, so I'm going through there and I look, and there's there were receipts for uh, some cement, some 50-pound cement bags to do the repair work. Uh, the house was all concrete, so cement was the major <laughs> part of it. And um, I see that there were 10 bags of 50-pound bags of c- cement. But amazingly, the 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 bags are the receipt is dated. Um, on the 8th and 9th of January 1947, the work was completed and, and built to, to uh, George O'Dell through Lloyd Wright. And these 50-pound bags of cement were the same size and type used to transport Elizabeth Short's body from the from an unknown murder location to the crime scene, to the dump site. And LAPD confirmed this, that the, these, these bags at the crimes, at the dump site were the bags used to transport her body from somewhere else. They were had blood on them. They had water on them. And um, the suspect put, apparently put the body parts on top of these, not inside, but on top of these bags, and then covered, probably covered on top of that, transported to the uh, location, and then used them to carry it. To the sidewalk, to the vacant lot, possum, and then the bags he just left laying next to the body. Well, in the original crime scene photographs, you see these 50-pound paper bag, large paper bags by the body. So we've got the receipt. <laughs> Amazingly, we've got the receipt for these. I mean, how many serial killer, how many killers are walking around with 50-pound bags of cement in their back pocket? You know. So we've got these bags. With the date within that so-called missing week, but within days of her being placed there, we've got these bags placed at the Franklin House, uh, known to be at the Franklin House. So that's hard physical evidence connecting uh, connecting it to the cry. I don't have the serial numbers, but hey, you know. And there was not just cement. There was also a bag of steer manure. One of the bags was uh, steer manure, Bandini steer manure. And Dad also had in these receipts in the file, Lloyd Wright's uh, file, also contained a purchase of, of uh, planting. It doesn't, didn't spe- specify Bandini, but it said several hundred dollars worth of plantings and materials. So there were a lot of plantings around the property and landscaping. So what's interesting is that it's my belief that the feces that was found in the stomach, which she was forced force-fed feces is most likely this steer manure, which is, of course, you know, feces. And the reason I say that is uh, the bag was called fertilite, steer manure, fertilite. Well, that fertilite was a green substance mixed in with the uh, steer manure. And in the autopsy report, they talk about a green substance, unidentified substance found in the stomach along with a feces. So had they known you know, they could have certainly tested and identified it as being fertilite, but of course, I guess they didn't put that together back then. But um, that was an amazing link that uh you know, it just doors keep opening one after the other on this investigation, even to the present time.
0: Another piece of evidence was the wristwatch found at the crime scene.
2: Yeah, the wristwatch uh I'm I'm a little bit off of that in the sense that I'm not as, I mean, it's possible, it's, what's interesting is, I saw a movie called Blow Up, some of you may, you may be familiar with it, which was a a kind of a classic film, and it gave me, uh, it's a story of, it's a murder mystery, uh, English murder mystery, and in it, the photographer was out taking photographs uh, in the park, and and he, anyway, he captures a, what may have been a murder in progress and he starts blowing up the photographs he's taken, and they become evidence in this crime. And he's actually able to connect a killer to the photographs he was taking. Well, that kind of gave me the idea to take the original crime scene photographs, of which I had pristine copies of, and blow them up, enlarge them, to see if I could kind of do a walk through, a re through of the original crime scene. I, I did that, and one of the things I discovered was There was an object, man-made object, inside the body, uh, in the torso, that looked like a watch. It was round, circular, and uh, it was actually inside the the body of the upper portion of the torso. And when I compared that to the photographs at the coroner's office, the object was not there. So I assumed they had taken whatever this object was out uh, and just not mentioned it, or it never came up. But then I discover, in, in re- researching articles, that they found a actually found a a man's wristwatch. They had 60 or so uh, police cadets from LAPD do a walkthrough of the of the vacant lot and area, and they recovered a men's watch, a military watch, which they describe uh, as being found near near the body or in in the area there, and um, that led me to believe that there's very possible that this, because in many of the Surrealist works, they use it, they will place a timepiece, a watch. You're familiar with the Dolly melting watches. Right. They will use it, and there are lots of other uh, examples of it in Surrealist art, where they actually use that to represent time in their artworks. So this led me to believe that Dad actually placed this watch inside the body, again, as part of his his masterpiece, his surrealist masterpiece, and then it either just fell out and was found a, a few days later in the, in the area or whatever. Sadly, all the, you know, and I thought this would be a slam dunk. We'd look at the watch that's in evidence, and it either was or wasn't. I had photos of Dad, pictures of Dad wearing a watch, a military watch with a black face in the 40s. So I thought, well, we'll compare it and see if it matches but unfortunately, uh, that's another part of we may, or may not have time to get into, which is all of the evidence. The physical evidence has disappeared from LAPD property and files. It's all vanished. But at the time, I didn't know that, and I thought, well, this will be. We'll just compare it, and it, it, it is or it isn't. But uh, it, it certainly is interesting. And, and uh, unfortunately, when blowing it up, you, you can only see the fact that it looks it appears to be man, man-made, and it's not. That distinctive, because when you blow it up, it loses its fidelity.
0: And some of the most damning evidence you found was from a set of police transcripts. And these transcripts pretty much prove that your father was a murderer.
2: Yes. Basically, the real icing on the cake, let's say, to the invest- investigatively speaking, came out after my book was was published. And that has to do and it's, I think it's worth uh Discussing this aspect, which has to do with the DA transcripts and all of that, because, you know, Steve Hodell could, could uh, sit here for five hours and, and tell you all uh, the reasons why the case is solved, but it's still Steve Hodell saying it. So much to my amazement, a- and what happened was, after my book came out, uh, or just as it was coming out, I went to uh, one of the LA Times Reporters. He's a columnist named Steve Lopez, who's fairly well-known here in L.A. And, and throughout the nation. And he's kind of a, a, a watchdog kind of guy. And I thought, you know, of all the people, he would be a, a good one to, to uh, give this to as kind of an exclusive before the book comes out. So I went to him and gave him the book ahead of time and, and kind of gave him a, a summary. He interviewed me at length. And then he went to... Um, and this is before the book came out, just as, just literally days before. He goes to LAPD and he says, hey, there's this guy, Steve O'Dell, retired LAPD, yada yada. He says his father was the Black value killer, blah, blah, blah. And basically LA said, you know, go away. We, we, we don't discuss this. This is an active case. Of course, it's not an active case. They haven't done anything with it in four years, but they just basically said, you know, we're not talking to you. So S- Lopez then goes to the DA. And basically says, Hey, Hotel, yada da, there's this. And, you know, Steve Cooley was the DA at that time, and Cooley says to him, Well, I'm not spending a a dime of of taxpayers' money to reinvestigate an old case. But he says, But there is a a file on the Black Dahlia if you want, it's locked away in the vault if you want, want to see it. Lopez says, Sure. They go downstairs, open the vault, get the box out. It gives it to Lopez. Lopez goes up to a room, sits down, opens up the file, and out falls a picture of Dr. George Hill O'Dell. And he says, whoa, he he was, apparently he was a suspect. So Lopez spends, oh, a couple of hours uh, going through, and he discovers some transcripts. And he discovers the fact that, that the Franklin House, the Mayan temple that we lived in, was bugged by LAPD and the DA's office on an investigation back then in 1950, January. And then he discovers some very damning transcripts. These are actually, uh, you know, transcripts from the taped. It was actually a wire recorder, but uh, recorded uh, where Dad actually confesses to the crime. So he writes a couple of articles, very quick, you know, cursory articles on, well, Hodell was a suspect and da 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 and he, he makes these statements and stuff, and he kind of leaves it at that. And so then I go and I go down to the DA and I said, you know, can I make copies and, and look through it? And he says yes. So I copy oh about three or four hundred pages of documents, and I spend the next six months going through them. And it, and there's it's incredible what you know what I find. Dad was the prime suspect back then uh, by LAPD, and. I'm reading through the transcripts and uh, I'll, I'll read you a couple of the quotes that are actually from the tape recorded stuff that files that they locked away. And, and uh, it starts out by Dad saying, and these are actual live co- uh, conversations. They're not phone taps. A lot of people think they're the phone. They're not. They're Actually, they. what they did was, well, they picked up Dad, took him downtown to the Hall of Justice to question him back then. And while they have him in custody down there talking to him a couple of sound technicians from LAPD and the DA's office go out to our house, break in, insert hard microphones in the walls, in the living room and in the bedroom, run a hard wire to the basement, run that to the Pactel lines, telephone lines, run that to Hollywood detectives two miles away into the basement, and they have 18 detectives assigned to a task force 24-7 for the next 42 days, and they're tape recording 24-7 around the clock, two detectives sitting in there listening to these conversations and recording when necessary. Here's a couple of the verbatim statements from the actual transcripts. We hear Dad say, suppose that I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. Well, his secretary was Ruth Spaulding, and he was investigated 18 months before the Dahlia murder as a murder suspect. They believe that he forced, overdosed uh, his secretary because she was going to reveal some criminal activity or some kind of information. Anyway, ultimately, they, LAPD acknowledged they did investigate him as a, as a murder suspect, but they weren't able to prove anything, so it was listed as a suicide. As a, uh, suicide. Anyway, later, another conversation. FBI were over to see me three weeks ago. Another conversation. Well, anyway, she hasn't said that she committed incest or killed the Black Dahlia. And he goes on to say, don't say anything on the phone. It's it's tapped. I have your phone number. I'll have to go out and call you. Well, so he's guessing or he's thinking that his phone is tapped, but he doesn't have a clue that the, he's wired for sound. Uh, and then he goes on, uh are they're probably watching me. Do you think we could get a, some uh, girls in to find out what they're doing? And then he actually cops out to the murder of his secretary. He says, put a pillow over her head, covered her covered her with a blanket, got a taxi, called Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, expired at 1239. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. And then he goes on to say in another conversation, this is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement agencies. You don't have the right contacts made at the DA's office and on and on. So and then he talks about committing performing abortions, which is a whole other section in my book about there was an abortion ring by medical doctors being paying protection money so they wouldn't be arrested. Of course, abortion back then was a felony. You went to state prison for three to five years uh, if you were caught performing an abortion. And so you've got all of these tapes. Now, they're on about the 42nd day of the tape recordings, and Dad apparently has tipped off. He splits, leaves the country, literally leaving the uh, detectives with the uh, their microphones up their walls, and uh, they close it down. But probably the most damning thing of all is on the third day of the tape recordings, and this is the reason... You know, you say, you know, your listeners will say, well, what the heck? They they had a dead bang. Why didn't they prosecute? Why didn't why wasn't he arrested? Well, he was about to be arrested, but he split and fled the country.
0: We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we
1: dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them.
0: Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia,
2: Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join
1: Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities.
0: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Let
1: Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations. Hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist?
0: And we have returned. What about extradition? Was there any attempt to extradite him back to the U.S.?
2: No, and and that's why you have to understand the history of L.A. and what was happening at that very moment to understand why they why they did what they did, which was basically I call it I call it a Dahlia Gate, where it was actually a cover up, and, and um, there's no question that they did what they did because we have. We have the tapes and we have the transcripts and none of this ever came out back then. So he split and basically what happens is at the very time these tape recordings are being made, uh, Bill Parker, who was our most famous uh, police chief back then was about to take command. He was literally a month, two months away from becoming the next chief. He and Thad Brown, the chief of detectives, were vying for the position of chief and uh, they both kind of had their long knives out for each other so this breaks and uh, and i think what happened was that internal affairs or detectives from robbery homicide whatever go to parker and brown and they say hey uh we've got this doctor it looks like we have we have him on the block dahlia murder and-, and probably some other murders he committed but he split the country and uh we don't know where he is. We don't know if he's in Mexico or he went to Asia or whatever. And, um, I think what happened was Thad Brown, chief of detectives, who was in charge of all of this and Parker, uh, made a kind of a Machiavellian decision. Look, you know, we, you know, I mean, what are their choices? They could expose this. They could reveal it and that would not allow them to take command because of, of the scandal that would be created on this. But what happened was, uh, before I go on, maybe I should, I, I should make this point, that the turning point was on the third day of the stakeout. There was actually a tape recorded murder that occurs unbelievably uh, uh, as the detectives are listening in. I mean, I'm reading these transcripts and I can't believe what I'm reading. It says, uh, first there's a woman and she, she, she's at the house and she's, she sounds intoxicated and she tries to telephone the operator. And she gets disconnected. And then she tries again and, and the uh, officers that are making the entry say she's, she's crying um, and she's, she still doesn't get through to the operator. And then it's silent. Then about three hours later, I'm reading the transcripts and they say George Odell and the second man who, who I identified as a, a baron, a German baron by the name of Moringa, who's there talking to him and he's a, probably an accomplice. He says, they go, they walk to the basement, he says, a pipe is hit against an object, a woman screams. The pipe is hit again, the woman screams again, then it goes silent. I'm reading this and I'm saying, what the hell? Why aren't they, they're literally four minutes away. Why aren't they out the door from Hollywood Detectives, Hollywood Basement, the police station there, and over and making rescue? But they, they take no action. So what we've got here is either a serious felony occurred or, I think more likely, a murder. And they do nothing. And, and um, now back to Parker and Thad Brown. They're informed of this, and they can't allow this to become public. So I think what they do as a couple of Machiavellian princes, they decide, look, let's lock this away. We'll take command. Parker will become chief. Thad Brown will remain chief of detectives. And we'll come back to this in a future time. You know, maybe we can find Hode- uh, George O'Dell, but maybe we won't be able to extradite him. If we do, maybe he gets Jerry Geisler, the defense attorney, and kicks our butt again like he did in the in the um, incest trial. Maybe it's better just to lift it, seal this off for now and, and uh, lock it away and come back to it in a future time. Let's clean up the department, turn things around, get rid of the corruption, and then we can move forward. And I think that's what they did. I mean that's all of the evidence clearly points to that. None of this came out. But the amazing part is all of the all of this was turned over to the LAPD, and it's all missing. It's all disappeared. Today's LAPD had no idea George Odell was a suspect. They knew none of this. And the only reason we found out was the Lieutenant Jemison in the DA's office who was assigned to investigate separately kept a second set of books. <laughs> And he locked them away in the vault, and they remained there for the last 55 years, until they were initially discovered by Lopez. And then, of course, I go in and I spend six months reviewing it and lay it all out, and it becomes an updated chapter. But point is that the reason for the the main reason for the cover up was the murder. They they couldn't allow the public uh, to know that uh, a murder had been committed while they were sitting there staked out on the. Crime, so i think that's basically the the, the motivation for for the cover-up
0: another fairly recent piece of investigation that you did i find quite interesting you actually went back to your childhood home with a police sergeant and a cadaver dog and discovered some pretty interesting clues
2: yeah that's part of the again in the in black guy avenger 2 it's part of the updated uh it was an amazing opportunity i i got a uh Call from uh, one of these programs, uh, Paranormal Ghostbusters, and they said, you know, we're going to do a thing about is the house haunted or not. We'd like you to participate, and I said, no thanks. I said, I, you know, I'm not into the paranormal. I, I said, you know, um, I, I want to keep my investigation clean. I don't want to go off on, on on tangents, and you know, I need to be objective, and and um, I'll pass. And they said, oh, well, we're going to have a uh, we're getting a, uh, a cadaver dog to go out to the house uh, with a handler, his handler, a retired police officer, to see if they can come up with anything. And I said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> in that case, I said, I'll be happy to be involved in that aspect of it because that's legitimate forensic investigation. And I said, I'll, I'll be. So I did. I, I met the uh, Buster was this uh, black Labrador and his handler uh, Paul Dosty who is a retired police officer and and Buster is one of the best highly highly trained cadaver dog and they're trained to respond only to human decomposition not you know if not a dead rat or a dead animal or something they'll only alert to uh, human decomposition the scent of uh, human decomp- decomposition so we were we met out front of the Franklin house this was uh, I think in t- 2012-13, and we start started out there, and, and uh, he gives him a search order, and Buster runs to the southwest corner of the home and alerts at a, a, a vent at the basement. Uh, we're actually, the house is elevated about 10 or 12 steps. So standing there, we're actually at basement level. And he alerts there and, and then we do follow-ups inside in the basement and he alerts at four different places. We recover soil samples. He alerts in the back of the house, in the alley. We recover soil samples. And, and he's only, he, like I say, it's only human remains that he alerts to. So these are analyzed and they come back, come back positive for human remains. Uh, an expert, uh, Dr. Arpad Voss, who was the actually the expert they used uh, on the uh, death uh, odor of death in the uh, was it Casey Anthony trial? He actually uh, was the, the expert used in that. Anyway, he comes back gives gives a formal report that it's positive for human remains, and uh, there are a lot of indications that there, there may have been bodies buried either in the basement or I think. More likely, in in my opinion, possibly in the back alley, there was a hill, which was kind of our backyard that we used to play on. And I I think if there's anything buried, it could well have been up on that hill, which is now, of course, developed and stuff.
0: But the police aren't interested in excavating the basement?
2: No, you know, basically LAPD's position is we're too busy with current crimes, even the cold case unit. Uh, Mitzi Reynolds is the assigned detective, and, and basically we sent the reports to her and stuff, and, and, and to the chief, and, uh, you know, Chief Beck wrote me back a letter saying we just don't have time to, to spend on these old cases. Which is, which is really a bunch of BS, because, I mean, frankly speaking, you know, the thing is that what they don't want to do is see, and they can't take the position that I haven't solved it, because, our chief uh, The case was submitted to, and I made a presentation uh, many years ago, to the um, Robbery Homicide Unit and a lot of the top brass on LAPD uh, with the DA transcripts and all of that. And I did it with Steve Kay, who was active head uh, deputy DA at the time. And the chief of detectives, LAPD chief of detectives at the time, t- tells his guys to go ahead and clear the case based on my investigation. I mean, he directly tells him to clear, it. he says, unless you can find some major hole. So all they can do, none, and they didn't. They just kind of ignored him. He retired a year later, and basically, they don't want to. I think they're viewing this as it's throwing mud on the badges of two of the, our greatest LAPD heroes, Chief Parker and Chief Brown. And that's not the case at all, basically. I, I'm not saying they were criminally involved. They're negligent in the sense that they covered it up to the point where they stopped the investigation from going proceeding. But basically, t- today's LAPD, they can't defeat the evidence. Or, so all they can do is say, we don't have time to look at it.
0: The whole thing seems pretty silly. On one hand, they tell you that they just don't have the time nor the inclination to look at the case. But on the other hand, they can't give you information because they say the case is active and it's not active.
2: No, it's not active. And and, and basically that's the only public response that and that was back then. Now they now their their position is we just we don't have time. We've got more important stuff to do than well, that's what the cold case unit is designed for is to and it's not like we're talking about they haven't even looked at any of the other connected murders. Those are all unsolved on their books. You know, you're talking about clearing eight or nine different uh cold, super cold, ice cold cases. But they, they don't even acknowledge that uh, those are related. And, of course, uh, today's LAPD, they, they just don't know the facts. I mean, you know, I've spent, in, in a way you can say this has been an obsession with me or, you know, um, because I've spent, you know, years and years. Well, they don't have any idea. They didn't even know George O'Dell was a suspect. I mean, that that's how ignorant, I don't mean that in a negative way, but that's how, uninformed they were on the on the investigation that, that he was even related to it and of well, course because everything was taken from their files they would have no way to connect him unless until we discover the new material
0: the lapd has taken a beating in the last couple of decades but official closure to the black dahlia case i mean that would be front page news probably the most famous open cold murder case in the united states You'd think that the LAPD would be looking for any positive press that they could get, and would jump on that publicity.
2: Well, you would think that, and and it's not like I'm some loose cannon. I mean, I was highly respected, had one of the highest clearance rates on the department. You know, left the department with a with a you know sterling record. So it's not, it's not like this Hodel is is some, some weirdo that's come up with a a daddy dearest thing. I mean, you know, it's it's um. The truth of this is, is what I've done is I've uncovered their investigation. Uh, it's, you know, you can say it's my investigation, but I've really uncovered their investigation, which had solved the case. So, you know, that that's what's being presented. And um, but again, it's it's you know, it has to do with territoriality. It has to do with egos. There's a whole bunch of things, you know, no you know, this this detective, the one detective uh, on the case, um, this uh, Brian Carr. He's retired now, but back then he, uh, his kind of attitude was, no, he hasn't even looked at the crime reports. He's nope, nobody's going to solve my case, you know. It's just uh, small-mindedness. Uh, the brass got it, but uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, they take the lead of whoever's assigned the case. It's not like they're actually doing the investigation. They leave it to their homicide guy, and if he's a guy like Carr was. He just shuts the whole thing down. You know, my judge and jury now are my readers, and because it's all come together so strongly, and there's just so much evidence now, it, it they get it. I mean, you know, it's it's basically um, way beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not like you know, it's it's borderline or anything. So, and one of the things that their negative attitudes did was keep me, you know, keep me moving. It forced me to keep investigating and coming up with new linkage, new evidence. There's plenty of, you know, right now I I recently sent, not recently, it's been a few years, you know, in Black Guy Avenger 2, I came up with new DNA potentials because all of the original mailings disappeared. Well, I've discovered that it looks like they may have some uh, mailings from my father that could possess DNA. And I have my father's full DNA profile now. I've been able to get that since about three years ago. I got a full profile from some letters he mailed to me, I was able to establish a full profile from my own independent laboratory work uh, done at the uh, FBI lab. So I have his profile, and all we need to do is get DNA from this one of these two new mailings that they uh, have. But they, again, Chief Beck wrote me back and says, we, we just don't have time to. I said, give me an hour, and I'll present explain the new evidence. So, sorry, we just don't have time. So basically, you know, uh, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I mean, it's been 10, 12 years now. I don't expect LAPD to respond. But uh, there's been a lot of coverage on it, a lot of shows done on it. And and now I've linked uh, with all of the new linkage to murders outside of Los Angeles. You know, I have some, you know, linkage to Chicago murders back then and to one in Manila. Uh, which was a copycat identical to, uh, the Black Dahlia, a woman posed on a vacant lot a mile from dad's home, surgically bisected, you know, I mean, it's just a copycat Black Dahlia, and it's their, one of Manila's most famous unsolved. The victim is Lucilla Lalou. And then, of course, the Bay Area, and, and, just, it's just been amazing how much information has come forward since, uh, it, it, so the good, the good part is it, it kept pushing me to dig deeper and deeper and uh, get where where we're now at now, where I've left it to where there's no doubt any longer.
0: So you've just alluded to some of the other murders in other parts of the country and the world that you suspect your father might have a connection to, including San Francisco. So I'd like to start by asking you about the Zodiac killer, who operated in that area and who you think might actually be your father.
2: Well, as bizarre as that sounds, uh, you know, I, I came out with uh, uh, Most Evil, which was the sequel, and and in that I didn't say the case was solved. I said, you know, we need to look at him, and I, and I laid out a strong case, uh, at least a circumstantial case, as to why he may have in, reinvented himself, come back in the '60s, and and reinvented himself as Zodiac. But now I've just come out with I don't know if you're aware of this, but Most Evil Two, which is amazing because what happened was, in addition, I came up with a lot of new evidence. But in addition to that, a, a Frenchman uh, solved uh, one of those authenticated Zodiac ciphers, and Dad's actually signed his name in a code to that. I mean, it, it, it leaves no doubt. It's it's uh, actually signed. He used he signed it uh, one of the mailings to the San Francisco Chronicle. He signs it uh, with the Zodiac signature, and then it's H O D E L. Hodel. Odell. <laughs> I mean, it's just mind-boggling that, and this guy actually cracked it. It's based on, a, again, it brings it back to surrealism and, and some artwork and some ciphers in an old Celtic language, where uh, he used to uh, sign his actual name. So it, it's it's huge. It's not like iffy. It's not like, are you seeing a, you know, am I? Is this a Rorschach test? No, it's five letters from this ancient alphabet. And they spell out hotel.
0: I'm looking forward to, to getting my hands on that book. So I also wanted to ask you about the Chicago lipstick murders. We're nearing the end of the interview, so maybe we can leave this one for a longer episode another day. But could you talk about those murders briefly and why you think your dad might have been involved?
2: Yeah. Well, basically, um, the, the reason I I looked at you know I would have never gone to the lipstick. There were three. There were three lipstick. Murders that occurred in Chicago in 1945 and January of 46, th- three different ones. Two adult women were killed and one uh, child, a little girl, was, was kidnapped and, and surgically bisected. And and uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, like you say, we don't have time for me to summarize it. I, th- there are three chapters in Most Evil, the, f- the first um, book, which is my sequel, and what the reason I went there was because Elizabeth Short uh, forced me to go there. I discovered in the D.A. transcripts that she went back to Chicago and was actively investigating the lipstick murders uh, back in 1946, just months before she was killed. And uh, this may have been what signed what signed her death warrant with George O'Dell. Was she, she actually slept with a couple of the newspaper reporters who were writing the articles on these murders, Wanting to get information and stuff, and and um, she was there, and they were constantly trying to get information on the lipstick murders. And I'm reading this in the DA files. And I think, what is this all about? Why is she back there and you know looking at these crimes and stuff? Then she comes back to L.A. and starts and suddenly starts running. Dad returns unexpectedly from China, and she starts running, disappears, goes to San Diego, and then of course we've discussed that the Police policewoman said that it's a man threatening to kill me. And then she's the next day, she her body's found. So anyway, the, you know, she's the one that turned me on to them. And there's a whole bunch of linkage um, uh, in regards to why I believe George O'Dell committed those crimes. There was a 17-year-old boy by the name of Bill Hirons. That was a, well, he was arrested and he confessed. But it was a false confession. He immediately took it back. But he spent... He spent the last sixty whatever years in jail. He just died in jail for those crimes, but there was never any trial, no evidence, anything. It's just his confession, and it's de- it's detailed in length in most evil.
0: Is there evidence that your your dad might have been in Chicago in 1945?
2: Well, I, I he went back a lot in his position as uh, uh, you know uh, head of L.A. County Health. They had an office, uh, in, in, uh, Washington, D.C. Chicago was a midpoint. So I can't, obviously there are no records to establish that I can put him there, but that was the, you know, stopping place for him. And, but there's more than that. It's, it's actually, uh, we don't have time to get into it, but there's actually, uh, the name of the little victim, just to give a quick uh, teaser, the name of the little victim, uh, the little girl was Degman. And Dad actually posed Elizabeth Short's body after he bisected it on a street here that, on Degnan. Even though everybody thinks it was Norton, it was actually, uh, Norton becomes, Degnan becomes Norton. It splits off. It's actually the same street. And he po- he he thought he was on Degnan, and he posed the body there. Again, another taunting clue. I've never even heard of the name Degnan. And um, you'll see how it all links, you know, I mean, you have to kind of read the chapters to get get how it all comes together but yeah he also the little girl in 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 uh, Degnan, he performed a hemicorpectomy on her body which is the same surgical procedure that he did on Elizabeth Short going between the second third lumbar vertebrae which is the only way you can divide a body without going through bone so he did it on a little girl and he did it again on Elizabeth Short there's just i mean amazing amount of uh linkage uh, to those crimes and, and uh, it all fits together. It's all, again, part of his, his um, bizarre murders of fine art. Uh, he'll carry this posing on street names and stuff into his San Francisco crimes.
0: What's flabbergasting is that Elizabeth Short, who you've described as 22 going on 14, has the gumption and the motivation to actively in- investigate a trio of murders. From the portrait you paint of her in the Black Dahlia Avenger book, it just doesn't seem like something that she'd do. But but now, suddenly, she's the second coming of Nellie Bly.
2: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what signed her death warrant, really, was that uh, I think she probably let him know that, either joking or not joking or something, that she was you know looking at those crimes and stuff. Because he quit his job with UNRWA as a medical officer in, in China and came back here and she immediately began running for her life. So uh, I'd say that the very likely that they were connected.
0: If people want to connect with you, learn more about you, how would they do it?
2: Uh, BlackDahliaAvenger.com is my website. And there's also, there's a squad room blog. You click on that and that just, I have all, you know, I've been blogging for eight, ten years now. So there's a master, uh, huge amount of it. There's also a frequently asked questions section. Uh, all of my books are available both in in print through Amazon or wherever, and also as eBooks. So basically, uh, you know, the, there's ten years of investigative documentation laid out uh, on my website, stevehodell.com.
0: Steve Hodell, thank you again for your time.
2: Okay, Eric, it's been a pleasure, and and. Best to you, and uh, good luck.
0: This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting through every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and please, if you haven't done so already, leave me a rating or a review on iTunes. And again, visit www.mostnotorious.com and hit the Amazon link to do all of your shopping from now on. I'll get a tiny percentage back, and it will go to producing the show for a long time to come, I hope. Have a safe tomorrow, and thank you again for listening.
1: Hello. My name's Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, You can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.
0: Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to?